Welcome to the Siskiy Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. All right. So have you guys ever done anything that you just totally regretted? Like you knew that it was bad, you knew that it was wrong, and you did it anyways. Like you were just totally full-on busted. Like you knew you shouldn't have done it, you did it, and then you got caught. And all the evidence was stacked up against you. There's just no way out of it. So when I was in high school, I was a freshman in high school. I was just finding my footing in a new school. And I, I was a quarterback of the football team. I, I played, I ran track. And I, I thought it would be a good idea to smoke some cigarettes in the bathroom of the gym with my buddies. And so, you know, after we get done smoking, thinking we're cool, we come out of the bathroom and I come face to face with Coach McIntyre. Now, here's the thing. He was only there for one year when, when I was a freshman and he retired, but this man was an absolute legend. The football field is named after him, for crying out loud. And so I, I come face to face with Coach uh, McIntyre and he says, what are you boys doing in there? You know, I mean, as a coach would say. And we're like, nothing. <laughs> Why do I smell smoke? We're like, smoke? <laughs> you guys been smoking cigarettes? What are cigarettes? Like, we just played dumb the whole way. Let me smell your breath. You know, you try to like breathe through your nose. You guys smell like, and then it's off to the office, right? And so Mr. Perry was the vice principal at the time. And this man had a grip like an alligator. It, it was just, I, and he would do this thing where he would grab your neck when he's talking to you. He didn't do that to most kids. He did that to me for sure though. And he was the kind of guy who used your last name, McVeigh. What am I going to do with you? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Coach McIntyre says that you're smoking. I don't, me? Is this your backpack? No. Well, then why do all the papers have your name on it? Mm. And it just kept going and going. And I denied and I denied and I denied. And we found the cigarettes and we found the lighter. Oh, and by the way, uh, all the guys that you're with already confessed to the crime. So the evidence had mounted Uh, guilty, undeniably, and I was absolutely without excuse. And that's the tone of Romans. As we open up the book of Romans, that is what Paul is getting at in the first few chapters. He's painting this dark background that the good news of the gospel might shine forth all the more brightly. And, And he's showing us our just undeniable guilt that we are without excuse. And On Wednesday night, as we kind of finished up chapter 18, that's when Paul really gets into it and starts just kind of laying out the accusations, the indictments against humanity. And and verse 18 of chapter 1 is kind of like the courtroom door opening. And and, and as we walk in, man, it's just the indictment and and the the judgment, the the evidence is presented, uh, the verdict is read, the case is closed. And the Jews are guilty. The Gentiles are guilty. The whole world is guilty. And as we kind of went through the last portion of chapter 1 in the book of Romans, man, Paul begins to lay out all these specific charges that, that we are really without excuse. Even those who have never heard the gospel who honor not God are without excuse because you can see the glory and wonder of God in his creation. 
And yet, in our foolishness, we reject the creator and worship the creation. And that's what's taking place currently in our culture. As we've gone head over heels in this whole worship of the environment and everything else. And are we to be good stewards? Absolutely, yes. But this thing, and we just kind of studied through all of this thing. Homosexuality being a result of man's fallen nature. And how we, you know, really having given over it to the base mind. And Paul, he lists all of these things at the end of chapter 1. He, he says, concerning the things that mankind is, is guilty of, he says, we've been given over to our idols, sins, lusts, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, backbiters, uh, and it just keeps going on and there in verse 30 of chapter 1. Uh, Paul continues on, the backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, uh, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Ouch. Right? So Paul, he really lays it out, the indictments against humanity, the depravity of the wicked disposed, exposed, and then the, the, the world just found guilty before the Lord. And I backtrack a little bit to discuss that because that is what chapter 2 really is all about. Chapter 2 begins with therefore. And whenever you see therefore in the Bible, well, you need to find out what it's there for. And so it really is this connection between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because you read through all of those things. Man, backbiter, untrustworthy, like all of these murderer, all of these just terrible sins. All this depravity. And the moralist, right, the self-righteous, the one who lives his life in a moral way with high ethical standards, would hear that list of just condemning evidence and say, man, all right, preach it. You know, let them have it. Or in our self-righteousness, we might be tempted to say, whew, all right, glad I am not one of those. I'm so glad I'm not, you know, a murderer or a thief or a liar or whatever the case may be. But Paul here in the second chapter of Romans he exposes the folly of that way of thinking. That is what he is addressing. The moralist, the self-righteous person, person who would say, well, I mean, I'm glad I'm not one of them. And he deals with this. Paul says, wait a minute, not so fast. You guys are guilty of the exact same things, you who judge. And, and you're not only guilty of doing the same things, but you judge others for doing the things that you do. They were total hypocrites. And, you know, it's interesting uh, that, you know, this gets addressed in the Bible a lot. This, this hypocritical idea of looking down our nose at somebody else as they struggle through sin, uh, while at the same time not recognizing the sin that's in our own lives. And you guys remember the, the story of the woman who was caught in adultery? It, it's there in the, the Gospels in John chapter 8. And there's Jesus, and the religious leaders of the day, they, they caught this couple in the act of adultery, in the very act. 
And they brought the woman, very interesting, very telling that they only bring the woman and let the guy off the hook. But they bring this woman before Jesus and they try to trap Jesus. Say, Jesus, what are we to do with this woman? The law of Moses says that we are to stone her to death. So they thought that they were catching Jesus in this dilemma. For you see, if Jesus condemned this woman and stoned her to death, well, then he would no longer be the friend of the sinner. But if he had compassion and let her go, then he would be one who rejected the law and they could get him there. But I love the way Jesus handled it. Jesus didn't argue with the religious zealots. He simply kind of ignored their question and then he began to write in the dirt. And the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote in the dirt, but when he finished uh, writing, whatever it is he wrote, he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So these men, they were there. They were ready. They were ready to stone her. And Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the way that's phrased in the original Greek is he, uh, he who is without the same sin, basically. That is the accusation that Jesus was making against these guys. He who has not committed the same sin of adultery, let him cast the first stone. And you guys know the story. What happened one by one? They dropped their stones and they walked away. And they're those that believe that Jesus was actually writing in the dirt uh, their crimes. Maybe names or places, uh, people that they had themselves committed adultery. Now that's all conjecture, we don't know that. But whatever the case is, it caused these men to drop their stones and, and walk away. And there's such an important lesson in that story for us. That we ought not be too quick to pick up of stones and condemn other people. You guys have heard the, the phrase, you shouldn't throw rocks if you live in a glass house, right? And that's really what Jesus is kind of pointing out. We shouldn't be so quick to throw rocks. We shouldn't be so quick to judge. But you see, that's the problem with sin. That sin has this blinding effect in our lives. Man, your sin, it looks so disgusting. I, I see things that I struggle with in your life, and I say, oh, that's gross, that's, the, I, I, it's just, I, I'm, oh, we, we just can't stand to see sin in other people's lives. But when I examine the sin in my own life, what do I do? What do we do? We rationalize, we justify, we make excuses, we judge our actions based on our intentions, while we judge everybody else based on the outcome. Now, you guys know that I, uh, and I've confessed this before, that I struggle with the sin of road rage. It just drives me crazy when people are driving slow or when somebody cuts me off. And, you know, somebody will, 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 will cut me off. And, you know, I, I have this tendency to just want to come unglued as if they saw me driving down the road. Like, is that Pastor Jerry? That is Pastor Jerry. Let's cut him off and see what he does. Like, and they cut me off. I'm like, war! Let's, like, do this. And my wife is like, Pastor Jeremy? As I'm like, boo! Like, speeding up to get on their tail. But when I commit that same sin, right, I wasn't, you know, being rude or malicious or, you know, I, I just, I accidentally just merged into the lane a little bit early. And see, we cut ourselves all sorts of, of slack while judging other people's sin harshly. We don't see sin in ourselves. And we see that illustrated for us in the life of King David. You guys remember King David? He's the greatest king in Israel. He was known as the man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, 
records this story. It's 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'm sorry. 2 Samuel chapter 12 records this interaction between King David and the prophet Nathan. And the prophet Nathan shows up to King David and says, Oh, king, we have this issue in the kingdom. There's a man who has many sheep, many flocks. He's a very rich man. And there's another man in the kingdom who's a poor man and has but one little lamb. And he loves that lamb as one of his own children. It eats with them. It sleeps with them. He loves that little lamb dearly. And a visitor came one day to visit the rich man. And instead of slaughtering one of his own animals to feed his guests, he went and barbecued the poor man's pet sheep and fed his guests. And you remember King David? He was indignant. He, was, he couldn't believe it. And he said, that man will surely die. And then there was those famous words from Nathan the prophet to King David. You are that man. You see, those were the crimes that David had committed, just framed in a different way. See, King David could have had any wife that he wanted to, any woman to be his wife in the whole entire kingdom. He had his pick. He was the king. But instead of finding his own wife, he stole Uriah the Hittite's wife, had an affair with her, got her pregnant, and then murdered Uriah, her husband, to cover his tracks. See, when he heard the story of the sheep, boy, he was so angered by somebody else's sin, even though his heart was just as dark. But that day, King David, he, he was broken over a sin. But that's Paul's whole point here in the beginning of chapter 2. As he speaks to the moralist, as he speaks to the one who is self-righteous, as he addresses the one who would look at their lives and say, what, I'm squeaky clean. Paul says, not so fast. No, you're not. You know, if you point a finger at somebody, you're pointing three fingers back at yourself. That old adage. And it's true. And so Paul here is really pointing out the reality to the self-righteous person. You're not as clean as you think you are. When you point your finger at somebody else, you're really indicting yourself. And that's what Paul's telling them. You think that that's going to go unchecked? You think that you can be a hypocrite and call everybody else out while your life is filthy and that goes unnoticed by God? You are not to judge people in that way, Paul says. And that word that is used for judge is, is krinos. And krinos means to judge unto condemnation. It means to judge unto condemnation. It's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, judge not lest ye be judged. That's the verse that everybody in the world knows. They say, hey man, you can't judge me or you'll be judged yourself. The whole world knows, judge not lest ye be judged. And it means to judge not unto condemnation. Why? Because we're all guilty. None of us are qualified to be a judge. Nobody are fit to judge somebody else's life under condemnation. Why? Because we're flawed. We all have our own mistakes. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Your best you on your best day is filthiness in comparison to God's righteousness. What right do I have to judge anybody else's life when my life, really, it, on my best day, is unrighteousness? But, but God doesn't have that problem. See, uh, we do. Uh, we also don't know the whole story. We think we do, but we don't know what's going on inside somebody's heart. God sees the heart. He knows. And then God judges according to truth. See, it's impossible for us to judge righteously according to truth because our judgments are skewed by our perspective and by our emotions. We are a fickle people. 
We're for one thing one day, and then we change our mind the next day. I see things one way, and you might see things a completely different way. God doesn't have that problem. God is truth. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me or comes to the Father but by me. See, God is proof, or truth, proof. Jesus is proof of God, but we won't go down that road right now. Uh, but, you know, concerning truth in our society today, the problem is we don't acknowledge an absolute truth. We, we don't acknowledge that, that truth is immovable. We see things like, you know, you just live your own truth. We see things like, you know, truth is relative or there is no real truth. And we assert our own flawed truth above God's absolute truth. And I've said this before, but there is no such thing as your truth and my truth. Truth is not subjective. It is not based or influenced by personal feelings or opinions. Truth is, is not relative. Truth does not depend on the circumstances around it. Truth is absolute and unchanging, and God is truth. His word is truth. And when we stand before God to give an account of our lives, we won't be judged against a sliding scale of what we thought was right or how we felt something might be wrong or right. It'll be by his perfect law. So we are not to judge others unto condemnation because we're flawed, because we don't see the whole story, and because we don't really even have the ability to judge righteously because it's God who can judge in truth. But does that mean that we're not to judge anything ever at all? Uh, of course not. That would be foolish. And Jesus actually goes on after he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. And he tells the story about the man who's got the telephone pole sticking out of his eye, trying to get a speck of dust out of his brother's eye. He says, you hypocrite. Well, worry about your own sin before you worry about the sin of somebody else, was Jesus' point. But I'm going to turn there in Matthew chapter 7, because uh, Jesus, he, he addresses this idea. Well, we're not to judge to condemnation, but we're not to make no judgments whatsoever, because a few verses after Jesus says that, Jesus warns to beware of false prophets. They're starting in verse, well, I don't know what verse that is, actually, because I can't, it's 15, it looks like. Yeah, verse 15 of uh, chapter 7. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree uh, bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So after Jesus said, judge not, he said, hey, but you're to judge people by their fruits. You're to be a fruit inspector, a fruit examiner. If a young man showed up to my house to pick up my daughter for a date... And he rolled up in a, a jalopy that had stickers that were just profane all over the back. And he opened his door to come up to the porch and, and empty beer cans rolled out onto the sidewalk. And, and he had a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. And he had a Playboy rolled up in his back pocket. There's some judgment coming from dad. <laughs> right? It would be unrighteous. If I was like, hey, how's it going? Have fun. See you later. 
We're to judge a tree by its fruits. Now, I'm not saying I'm better than him. I'm not to judge that he's going to hell. I have my own sin. We're both saved by grace. But we're to make those calls. So we're not to judge unto condemnation. We don't condemn people. That's God's job. Not for condemnation, but we judge for identification. To know the things that are right and the things that are wrong and to keep distance and to keep safe when we need to. It's very important that we make that distinction. Um, But Paul's whole point here that he's making uh, to the self-righteous, to the moralist, uh, is that they are guilty of the things that they are accusing other people of doing. And, you know, the self-righteous, the person who looks at their life and thinks that they are squeaky clean, that they're good, quote-unquote, We'll say, well, wait a minute here. I actually don't fall into that category. You know, read that list again. I'm not a liar. I'm not a thief. Uh, you know, I, I, I've never committed adultery or murder or any of these things. Uh, that's just not true. Uh, we have all, every single one of us in this room has sinned. And we'll get into that further on in Romans, that all have sinned and fallen short, that there's none righteous, no, not one, that we are all sheep that have gone astray. We've all turned from the Lord. Every single one of us in here has lied at one point or another in their life. Every single one of us has been jealous of something that somebody else has. Every single one of us in this room has lost our tempers and disobeyed our parents. See, here's the thing about sin. It's not about the frequency that you sin. It's not about the degree to which you sin. It's whether or not you have sinned. Sin is sin is sin is sin, and the wages of sin is death. So if you have ever committed a sin, then you're in that category. You say, well, wait a second. I kind of get it, but, but seriously, you're telling me adultery? I've never committed adultery. Jesus said if you've ever looked upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. But murder? Jesus said if you hate a brother without cause, then you have murdered him in your heart. And those are hard, hard uh, accusations indictments, because it's not just the outward action that God judges us by. It's not just the outward action that God sees. He sees the heart. He sees your thought life. He sees everything that takes place. And you say, well, wait a second. We're supposed to be perfect in thought and deed from the time we're born to the time we die? Who on earth could live up to that standard? If that's the case, we're all doomed. Now you're getting it. We are without excuse. And that is what Paul is saying. It's inexcusable. And so he, he begins to ask a couple questions to this self-righteous person. And he says, you know, do you really think that you're going to escape God's judgment? Uh, you know, truly, against those who practice such things, do you think, this, O oh man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So Paul asks the moralists these these questions. He says, do you really think that you are going to escape the judgment? Do you really think that what you have done in your life is good enough to offset the things that you have done bad in your life? And, And unequivocally, the answer to that is no, because again, God's standard is perfect. You can't make any mistakes. Paul says to the self-righteous, you know, do you reject God's mercy? Do you hate God's mercy? His love, his mercy, his grace, his patience with you. 
Why do you take God's mercy and grace and patience and throw it back in his face by continuing to live a life of sin, to continue to be a hypocrite? God's goodness towards us should cause us to repent, to turn towards him, not to uh, take this attitude of superiority. See, because God is long-suffering, because God is patient with us. Right? We get the idea that, boy, God is absolutely 100% pleased with us. That we can sin and we say, well, you know, sheesh, the Lord really didn't do anything. You know, and we mistake God's patience for impotence. We mistake God's patience for indifference. We mistake God's long-suffering for acceptance. So why is it that God is patient? Why is he so patient? Why doesn't he just... Boom! Like, drop us dead the second that we sin. Toad, worm, toast, like lightning bolts, whatever it is. Because God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. You know, some people feel like, man, God's chasing me, and if he catches me, I'm toast. God's chasing you, he is, because he wants to set you free. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but he wants to give us time and space that we would experience his goodness and repent that we would turn from our sin and turn towards him. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 13. And in verse 6, he says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came uh, seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and have found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But the keeper of the vineyard answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. See, it's not that the Lord can't do anything. He's not impotent. It's not that the, the Lord doesn't care. He's not indifferent. It's not that the Lord approves of our sin, but he's giving us time to repent, to change our minds concerning him because he desires us to walk with him. With everything that we have, he desires for us to turn our hearts and lives towards him. And that is why he's patient. And that is why he is good to us. And that is what leads us to repentance. It's his goodness or his kindness that leads us to repentance. Here's the thing. It wasn't the fear of hell that led me to repentance. Because in my ignorance, I either thought that I would scrape by by the skin of my teeth, that hell wasn't a real thing, or that hell was just a kegger and I couldn't wait to party with my friends. It wasn't some Bible thumper smashing me over the head and telling me what a heathen I was that caused me to repent from my sins. What caused me to repent really was looking at my life and, 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 and just doing some math and evaluating and say, you know, Lord, I have been a total heathen. I have turned from you. I have lived my life in my own way, and yet you've blessed me so abundantly. The sun came up this morning, and I have food. I have a house. I have hobbies. I have money. I have a beautiful wife. I have beautiful kids. Why? You owe me nothing. And that is what really led me to a place of turning to the Lord, of repenting. But that long suffering, that patience of God, has an expiration date. God isn't patient for all of eternity. 
At some point in your life, you will come to a crossroads, either by death or by rapture. Someday you will take your last breath and you will stand before the Lord. And at that point, it will be too late. There's no repentance after death. That's the thing. And Paul, he makes that clear here when he says that the goodness of God leads to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation on the righteous, of the, uh, righteous judgment of God. What does it mean when Paul said, hey, you're storing up for yourself, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath? There's a story that is told of a bank teller in the 1800s who had a very uh, unique retirement plan. <laughs> he decided that he was going to steal one silver coin every single day for the rest of his working days until he had enough silver coins to finally just be financially independent and retire. And so he did that every single day. Boy, he took one silver coin, and he was a smart guy. He knew how to cook the books. He knew how to cover his tracks, and so nobody knew, and he thought the whole time he was getting away with it, and this went on day after day after week after month after year. For 20 years, this guy stole a silver coin every single day, and he stashed it in his attic. And there, as he drew close to his retirement, he laid in his bed thinking about all the things that he would do, when his ceiling crashed in under the weight of all the silver he had stashed in his attic. You see, he was guilty. He was crushed by his... And that's what it means to treasure up for yourself wrath. There's no such thing as secret sin. There's no such thing as getting away with it. The Bible tells us that, man, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that also will he reap. If he sows into the flesh, and he reaps destruction. But if he sows into the spirit, everlasting life. Uh, that's a, a, a real consequence that, that Paul uh, lays out for us here in, in, in this section. The goodness of God makes indulgence in the heart of the fool possible. It's because God has been good that we can just, boy, glut ourselves and do whatever we want and Sin if we so feel. But it's his goodness also, on the other side of that, that brings about repentance in the hearts of wise men. As we close, I want to pose a couple questions to you guys. And the first of those is this. Have you been despising the riches of God's goodness? And God has been so good to you. Have you been despising his goodness? Have you been taking it for granted? Have you been throwing it back in his face? Have you been living your own life? That's what Paul is speaking about here. He has watered. He has fertilized. He has tended. He's cared. He's done everything that he can do. He died on a cross in our place. He took our sins upon himself and gave us his righteousness that we might be able to walk according uh, to his promises, that we would be saved, that we would be set free. He paid the penalty. He paid the price. Here's the thing. He won't drive you to repentance. He won't do it for you. He won't force it into your life. He leads us into repentance. It's a choice that we have to make ourselves. Today, 
I would say be wise and repent. And be wise and re re repent. And we get such a, a negative idea in our head about what repentance means. Like, oh man, repent, I have to turn from everything that's fun. And we make it about turning from our sins, which it is, it's about turning from our sins. But it's less about what we're turning from and more about what we're turning to. See, it's the same action, turning from my sin, turning towards Jesus. But there's a difference in the way that we think about it because, you know, we get this idea like, if I just lay down that thing that's bad, then I will be in good graces with God. It's not what it's about. It's about turning towards Jesus. And as we turn towards Jesus, we automatically turn from those things. You can't turn towards sin and Jesus at the same time. As we turn towards Jesus, we turn away from those things. And that's my heart for us this morning as we just consider, man, the goodness of God and how it leads us to repentance, that we would be a people who have hearts that are turned towards the Lord and away from our sin. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light and in the light and glory of his grace. It's a wonderful old hymn, but it rings so true. Uh, let his kindness lead you to repentance this morning. And if you're in this place and you're a Christian and you're saved, you're headed for heaven, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. But again, sometimes as Christians, man, we, we play this game where we turn towards God and turn towards sin and turn towards God and turn towards sin. And my prayer for us who belong to the Lord this morning would be, again, to, to just have that refresher course and remember how good he's been to us. And that would cause us to want to turn towards him and love him and worship and walk in all that he has for us. But if you're in this place and you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you've never had your sins forgiven, you've never turned towards him, man, turn towards him today. You say, I don't know how. I don't know if I'm worthy. Here's the thing. None of us are worthy. That's the beauty of the cross. Is that he's made a way for us to turn towards him. That's the goodness that Paul is talking about. And the Bible says is if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then you're saved. That's it. And I talk about it all the time, and I hope you guys are sick of hearing it. I hope that when I die on my tombstone, you say, the guy that would not shut up about how you get saved. Because it is no magic set of words that you say. It's a posture. It's your heart. It's getting real with the Lord. And it's simply turning towards him in surrender. And for every single one of us in this place, no matter where you're at, what you're going through, what you've gone through, God is there. You can turn towards Jesus this morning. And I pray that you would do that. And we get to really remember God's goodness in a special way as we close out the service with communion this morning. And communion is that, that special thing that, that Jesus, he asked us to do as his followers. It's that thing that he instituted the night before he was crucified. There with the disciples in the upper room and they're celebrating the feast of Passover you're having this meal that was so rich in its meaning, in its significance. Every piece of the meal, so important. And Jesus took the bread and the wine, and he told his guys, he said, man, as often as you do this, as often as you have bread and wine, do this in remembrance of me. Remember that I died for you as your substitute. Remember that I paid the price that you couldn't pay.
as you eat the, the bread. That's what we're to remember. That Jesus was literally beaten and bound that we might be blessed and, and go free. What a wonderful thing that is that God has done for us. And as he took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the New Testament. You know what that means? The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was this, man, we have to live that perfect life in thought and in deed or we're bound for hell. The law was given to us, not as a means for salvation, but to show us our need for a Savior. And on that night, Jesus, he flipped things upside down. He said, you know, this is the new covenant in my blood. That it's not by earning salvation that you're saved. It's by trusting in me. It's by my blood that your sins are blotted out. And so we get to remember God's goodness, Jesus' goodness specifically. Amen. As we come to the table and remember what it is that he's done for us, and he made it available to everybody, every single person. He said, I want you to remember me in these common things. Don't you love that about the Lord? He, he didn't make it like difficult to meet with him. What a privilege it is that we get to meet with God through these elements this morning. He didn't say, you know, you got to make sure that this bread, you know, it's got to be wheat that was grown, you know, in Hawaii, in volcanic soil. His whole life, it was grown in temperatures between, you know, 70 and 82 degrees. It has to be milled with a golden millstone and baked in an oven. He didn't do any of that sort of stuff. He took a couple common elements and said, these everyday things come and meet with me. You don't deserve it, and neither do I, and that's the beauty of it, that we're invited in anyways, not based on your merits, but based on Jesus' merits. So as we come to the table... And this morning, rejoice in the goodness of God and let his kindness lead you to repentance. Let his kindness bring you to a place to where you want to be his more today than you ever have in your life. So Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, that the sun rises on the, the, the good and the wicked. Lord, that you bless us in hopes that we would recognize your goodness and that would lead us to a place to where all we want is you. And I pray that that's the place we'd come to this morning. Lord, that we would come to a place of surrender, that we would come to a, a, a place of repentance, and that we would turn to you with our whole hearts and our whole lives. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together in this place freely and worship you and remember what it is you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for your body that was beaten and bruised, that I might be set free. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Lord, that you spilled it out so freely, that we've been forgiven so completely, that our sins have been blotted out, that we've been justified just like we've never sinned. We remember this morning, Lord, and we rejoice. We remember this morning, and we reflect. We remember this morning, Lord, and we turn towards you. We love you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit SiskiyouChristianFellowship.com.